Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Everybody and welcome to Fruit Loops Season 3, Episode 28. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we do not hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight white dudes. What? <laughs> Get out of here. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join the discussion by using the hashtag Fruit Loops Pod discussion or by joining our Facebook group. All of the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Yes, everything Beth said is true. We are not qualified to really speak about anything, <laughs> but if you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. We also have some merch for sale on our website, but if you can't help monetarily, no problem. You can always give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And be sure to share our show with your friends. So yeah. who 
are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Chai Sua Vang, a Hmong American man who was convicted for killing six hunters and wounding two others during a hunting dispute. He's more like a mass murderer than a serial killer, but uh, sometimes we like to cover these cases anyway, and this one is particularly interesting. It absolutely is, but before we get into it... How you doing? I'm okay. I've been immersing myself in this case for days because I found it so fascinating. So I've been kind of out of the loop. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, welcome back to planet Earth. Um, Thank you. Uh, uh, Except for still-, still in this case. So yeah. <laughs> um, we're glad you could join us. Um <laughs> Uh, me, I am great. I went to a quinceanera last night for a 72-year-old woman. Oh, um, my gosh. So she was, uh, she grew up in, I think, Jalisco in Mexico. Um, but her family was really poor and they couldn't afford a quinceanera. So she never got one. Aww. And her daughters decided to throw her one last That's night. That's so and awesome. And it was fucking dope. And uh, I was sober. And so shout out wow. to the Sober Curious gang out there. I mean, it was a, it was a lot of fun. Like normally when, I mean, it was open bar, tequila shots, free beers, all the things. And I was just really proud of myself for like, yeah. you know, being responsible. And I yeah, also have you. to add, thank you, um, that I found this case so captivating. I watched the documentaries about it more than yeah. once. So, yeah, yeah, I can't wait to get into it. But before <laughs> before we get there, we are going to uh, dive into some listener letters. So. Hello, angels. Thank Hello. you. So it looks like they delivered the bag to you, Beth. So what? It, what what's in the bag? Yeah. So we got a message from Kimberly on Facebook and uh, she said, I love your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I've been binge listening your podcast for a few days. I'm on season two, episode seven. You guys are the best. If I knew both of you guys in real life, we would get along fine. And I think we would. I think that's true. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So thank you, Kimberly. And hip hop air horns to you. Absolutely. You get all of them. Yes. Uh, We also got a lovely comment on our website from CCL, and she says, I'm new to podcasts, so I feel like a real life adult now. I discovered your podcast and can't get enough. I listen to it when I'm getting ready in the morning, on the way to work, on the way home, etc. I'm super obsessed. I love that you guys get into the point and tell the story. With that being said, I'm not all the way caught up. I'm in season two, and I don't know if you've covered it yet, but have you guys done a story on Samuel Little? More on that later. He confessed to 93 murders along with drawing pictures of his victims to identify them. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, seriously. Yeah. (laughs) If not, I hope you guys do. And uh, to that, I say... Yes, we have heard. Uh, she says, once again, you guys are doing great. Thank you. And hip hop air horns to you. We will do an episode on Samuel Little, but want to, we want, we at Fruit Loops, we want to do it justice. And there's still so much information trickling in about him that we're not sure if we're ready to, to do it yet. Dive into it. We don't want to do a half-assed job. Yeah, exactly. Be patient, though. It is it is coming. So thank yeah. you, Cece. Yeah. You get some hip hop air horns. 
Yeah, and we thank you, you so much, much. Yes. Yeah. Also, thank you to all of our patrons and Patreons who are supporting us. Um, we appreciate you too as well. So hip hop air horn. <laughs> all of you. <laughs> to everybody. So, <clears throat> so we uh, don't do this every episode, but we uh, wanted to talk about a little bit about race. So before we get into this episode, um, we would like to say that this is a podcast about true crime and about people of color and true crime is difficult to talk about and hear about. And sometimes race can be the same, but both are just part of the world that we live in. And we want this to be a safe space where we can have discussions about it. And we're all learning all the time and hopefully all trying to be our best sexy selves. So remember that. <clears throat> yeah. If you're a part of the Fruit Loose Pod, pod Squad. Um, but recently in our Facebook uh, discussion group, um, there was a post about Kobe and Cosby and rape and race. And these are hot topics, to say the least, um, that uh, include not just the men, but their legacies, which are complicated, their race, um, because there's good and there's bad. Um, you know, they are uh, involved in sex crimes. And also, um, these particular men, they were black men, are discussed in the media differently than the wealthy, their wealthy white um, male counterparts. Counterparts, yeah. <clears throat> who also engaged in sex crimes. I, I think of uh, Weinstein, um, Epstein, to name a few. Obviously, these are complex subjects. And I wanted to just talk about the reaction to the post. And I, I've been thinking about this a lot. Beth and I have discussed this. When we started this show, um, one of Beth's concerns was, well, I, I don't know if it, it's okay for me to talk about race. And I assured her that it was, it was necessary. Um, and we want um, white people to be open to hearing our stories and also, and, and listen, um, and then also be willing to um, give their input. And sometimes, um, and and again, we want we want everybody to be able to engage in tough discussions. But one thing that happens sometimes is when a person of color might point out uh, maybe a flaw or a counterpoint to an argument that a white person makes, that white person might react in a really defensive way, as if to us it seems like their their whiteness is under attack, but to them it seems like their goodness as a person is being attacked. And it is not. It is not that. Um, and this is a phenomenon that we call uh, white woman tears. So. <clears throat> Welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. Uh, white woman tears refers to, does not refer to all tears shed by white women. Uh, everyone has legitimate reasons to cry, obviously. But it refers specifically to crying and other expressions of distress by white women as a means of weaponizing the privilege inherent in whiteness and exerting the full power of white womanhood as a class historically designated as delicate, racially superior beings in need of protection. And that is a quote from Alexandria Bennett in her um, piece called White Woman Tears, These Tears Taste Like Oppression. That all said, we um, had to shut down the comments on the thread, um, which we don't have to do very often. Um, normally, you, you all are beautiful, and we love your engagement. Keep it coming. Um, we want to continue these discussions, but um, we try to be respectful of each other, and we, we want our um, pod squad to be the same. And why people can have uh, opinions and perspectives and questions um, about 
these issues. Um, but so can people of color. So if you're called out on your whiteness, it's not an attack on you. That's that's all I wanted to say. So all of that said, um, I think that the post in our, our Facebook group, uh, I think there was just basically a lot of miscommunication mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of miscommunication. Oh, sorry. I'm losing That's my okay. mouth again. <laughs> <laughs> Did it run away? Yeah, it ran off. It's like, I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> this is uncomfortable. Oh, Ooh. do your white lady tears. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> oh, God. Call 911. <laughs> okay, the show's over. <laughs> no, <laughs> let me start again. Okay. Um. I think a lot of miscommunication occurs when people misunderstand what someone says, or in Mm -hmm. this case, posts. And uh, it's a good idea to try to understand what the person is saying before making assumptions and immediately attacking the person. And um, this is just in general, communication in general. Mm -hmm. Um, And a good way to, to do that is to restate what you think the person is saying. Something like, when you said that, what I heard was, and then say what your interpretation is of what you think the person is saying, and then ask is that what mm-hmm. you meant? And mm-hmm. let the person respond and tell you if you interpret it correctly. Um, a lot of times emotions get in the way and what the person person said is not actually what you heard or what they intended. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I learned, this is stuff that I learned in counseling. So <laughs> this is actual <laughs> psychological stuff. Say, my therapist told me all this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, and that's a great thing to do in your interpersonal communications as well. Um, A lot of times on the internet, people, they just don't use good communication and in real life too, but particularly on the internet, people tend to be a little more brusque than uh, in in real life. Mm -hmm. But another thing you can do is use I statements. Um, I feel blank when you say blank. Mm -hmm. For example, some men will dismiss women's feelings by saying that they just must be PMSing. And what you can say is, I feel dismissed and unheard when you say that my feelings are just the result of PMS, instead of Mm. just yelling what you all want to yell, which is, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Smoke coming out of your ears. I bring fire when I hear that. Yes. (laughs) So when you use I statements, you're, you're putting the impetus on yourself. So I feel, so you're not saying you do this, and you do that, you're saying, I feel this, I feel, which uh, backfired on me once when I was arguing with a boyfriend and I was saying, I feel this. And he was like, you, 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 it's all about you. Oh, what do you got to say now, counselor? I, well, what I did was I told him I was using I feel statements and I explained it and then he felt like an ass. So it was oh. great. <laughs> So a lot of times people don't realize that what they're saying is offensive and a good way to tell them that what they're saying is offensive to you without going on the attack is to use I feel statements Mm -hmm. because once you verbally attack someone, they will, of course, immediately go on the defensive and that's not good for effective communication. Yeah. Uh, Once the discussion gets into an attack mode, all good communication ceases and it's just people yelling at each other. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're really angry when someone 
says or posts something, it's a good idea to walk away for a little bit, not post or say what immediately comes to mind. Cool down a bit so you can respond in a way that is better for communication. Um, I've had occasions where I've wanted to post the shit out of something Mm -hmm. (laughs) and just walked away and came back the next day and was like, you know what, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. And sometimes if a person is unable or unwilling to communicate in a positive way with you, it's just a good idea to say your piece and then walk away rather than get embroiled in a shouting match that brings you both down. And what I always try to remember is what Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's, um, that's all. I just did a bomb sound effect because that was fire. And the last episode we recorded, your sister was like, "You, why don't you? You Where's should have bomb a bomb sound, sound effect. effect." And I yeah. was like, "So you found You're one, huh?" Right, I found one. Um, but yeah, no, that's all. That's all true. We just we just want our discussions to be healthy and and also safe and. Um, make everybody feel comfortable and when we say everybody we really mean everybody so everybody um, yeah we just we just felt that that needed some addressing and it would have been too hard to like you know address it on facebook and then talk about it on twitter and then talk about it on instagram talk about it on the podcast and and we may occasionally post things about good communication just because it's helpful not only you know in our our group and and whatever but also in real life so yeah no and again these are not like easy subjects to talk about and we want everybody to feel welcome right right um and so you know it's it's a challenge we who knows maybe we're doing it wrong too but we're yeah. trying so we're trying so you know, yeah we, we may get it wrong but we're yeah. trying and we yeah. welcome our listeners to be a part of the conversation on facebook or twitter at fruit loops pod or email us at fruit loops pod at gmail.com now we're going to take a quick break and get into the story for reals this time when we come back <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, this is Stevie Richards. When I'm not doing Stevie Richards Fitness, well, actually, when I am doing Stevie Richards Fitness Resistance Band Training Programs, I like to listen to my friends on the Voices of Misery podcast. They talk about literally everything and anything, some stuff that might offend you. So if you're not easily offended, don't subscribe because they say whatever is on their minds is actually, actually subscribe, subscribe. Anyway, you might learn something and check them out anywhere you can download and listen to your favorite podcast. And of course, check them out at voices of So, um, Beth, now we're back. Who are we talking about again today? We're talking about Chai Sua Vang, a Hmong American man who is hunting in Wisconsin, wandered into private land and was confronted. And then this led to Vang killing six and wounding two. Right. So as uh, Beth said, now we're going to get into the stats. my favorite part of the story. Uh, (laughs) Mr. Vang was a Hmong American man. He was a U.S. military veteran. The crimes took place in Wisconsin on November 21st, 2004. This is around Thanksgiving at the beginning of hunting season in Wisconsin. And he shot eight people that day and six of them died. The people who were killed, let's speak their names, rest in power, kings and queens. Robert Bob Crow II was 42. He owned a concrete business in Rice Lake. He was married 
married. He had three children and he was shot in the back. Joseph Joey Cruteau was 20. Uh, and these were all family members and, cl- and close friends. Um, was 20 years old. That's Bob's uh, son and uh, partner in business. Uh, was shot four times in the back. Alan Lasky was 43 years old. He was a manager of a Rice Lake area lumber yard. He was married. He had three children and he was shot in the back three times. Mark Reut was 28, a friend of the Drew family, shot once in the head. Uh, Jessica Willers was 27 years old. Um, and some sources said she was an ER nurse. Other sources said she was an OR nurse. Either way, she was a nurse from Rice Lake who had moved to Green Bay and she was engaged. Um, at the time of her death, she was shot in the back twice. Denny Drew was 55 years old, a car salesman in Rice Lake, shot once through the stomach and died in the hospital. Um, and those uh, who were wounded were Lauren Hesbeck, who was 48 years old. He was a manager at a car dealership in Rice Lake. And Drew was his brother-in-law, uh, who was shot through the shoulder, which uh, uh, the bullet exited his back. Uh, Terry Willers was 47 years old. He was a father to Jessica Willers, who was uh, shot uh, a couple times and passed away. He worked at uh, Cruteau's concrete business, and he was shot once in the neck. All of the victims were white. And uh, again, uh, Mr. Vang was an Asian American. And that is, in my opinion, very important to the story. So now we're going to dive into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Okay, so the Hmong, uh, which is spelled H-M-O-N-G, but pronounced Hmong. They're members of an ethnic group that have not had a country of their own. I also want to mention that the plural of Hmong is not Hmongs, it is Hmong. So you say Hmong people or the Hmong. Mm. For thousands of years, the Hmong lived in southwestern China. But when the Chinese began limiting their freedom in the mid-1600s, many migrated to Laos, Thailand, and other neighboring countries. There are about four to five million Hmong around the world. The word Lao is traditionally used to describe the Lao people, who are the majority in Laos. The Hmong are an ethnic group within the, the country of Laos. Both are from Laos, but the Hmong are called Hmong even by the majority Lao. And the Hmong face a lot of discrimination in Laos and, and all, I think all throughout Indochina. Yeah. By the way, I got a really good friend who is from Laos. And my first introduction to like Laos was King, the King of the Hill. Do you remember that show? Yeah. And the King of the Hill's neighbor was from Laos and he would like speak in his native language which we thought was like Laotian or Thai. But my friend said, that's not really Thai. They're just speaking gibberish. Oh my gosh. Yeah, for the show. And I was like, oh my God, why are more people talking about this? Anyway, I just wanted to mention. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. They should have gotten somebody to to at least- They should have hired a consultant. I'm sure they had the resources. They were just being lazy. Yeah. (laughs) Lazy. And racist. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Leave it up to Fox. <laughs> <laughs> no joke. <laughs> so the Hmong people come from a collectivistic culture. These cultures emphasize the needs and goals of the group as a whole over the needs and desires of each individual. Relationships with other members of the group and the interconnectedness between people play a central role in each person's identity. I think that sounds lovely. In yeah, collectivist cultures, people are considered good. If they are generous, helpful, dependable, and attentive to the needs of others. This contrasts with
with individualistic cultures that often place a greater emphasis on characteristics such as assertiveness and independence. And uh, assholery. Uh, yeah. During the Vietnam War, the Hmong in Laos aided and partnered with the CIA to fight Southeast Asian communists in what is now known as the quote unquote secret war. This alliance lasted 15 years. But after the United States pulled out of Laos, communist forces took over and began retaliating against the Hmong for siding with the United States. Thousands fled and died, and numerous refugee camps were set up in Thailand. Yeah, and um, I just quick shout out to United Shades of America on CNN. W. Kamau Bell did uh, an, uh, an entire episode on the Hmong people. And oh, wow. he interviewed a gentleman who was a child during this time and his parents I think had been killed and so he and his siblings with a baby sibling who they had to give opioids to to keep oh them God. quiet because the um, Vietnam forces if they heard a baby crying they would just, sh- they they would, would just yeah. shoot and kill these children wow. um, and he talks about the terror and just the desire to get to safety it, it's it was it's it sounds horrifying horrific. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But many Hmong families eventually resettled in the United States, France, Australia, and other parts of the world um, that would take them. In the U.S., after the initial Hmong families settled in the area, they encouraged their relatives and friends to move there as well so that they could support each other. So some secondary migration occurred after initial resettlement. According to the 2010 census, California has the largest Hmong population in the United States, more than 91,000. Minnesota ranks second with more than 66,000, and Wisconsin is third with a Hmong population of about 49,000. In Wisconsin, where this story takes place, hunting is very popular. But the rules and etiquette on white American hunting that are passed from generation to generation are unfamiliar to many Hmong. The Loud Mountains are among the wildest and least populated areas of the world, and there are no regulations about what or where or when to hunt. Conservation officers and property owners have reported conflicts with the Hmong over their hunting practices, often because they just didn't understand American traditions. So now we are going to get into the early life of Mr. Vang. Uh, Chai Sua Vang was born on September 24th, 1968 in a mountainous region of northwest Laos called Phun Hao in Sayosbury province. He was the second of six children and the oldest son, um, which is significant in a, in a culture yeah. such as this. Uh, the community consisted of about 100 families. They had no electricity, plumbing, or schools. The men farmed when they weren't fighting with the CIA against communist forces, blocking the Ho Chi Minh Trail during the Vietnam War. According to one of Chai's cousins, when describing their childhood in Laos, quote, we'd play soldier and we'd use bamboo to make a gun. We'd hide in the bush and go bang, 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 unquote. <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah. So I, <laughs> this is so stupid, but I, when I was a child coming up, it, there was the Gulf War and right. we, me and my friends used to play Saddam Gulf Hussein War. versus oh, yeah, wow. Gulf War versus the United States. We like throw like spitballs and bricks at each other. I mean, it was just, it was so dumb, but that's what <laughs> kids do in a, in a yeah. time of war. Uh, anyway, yeah. 
the extended family left Laos in 1975 and settled in a refugee camp in Thailand. Chai Vang's family moved on to St. Paul, Minnesota in 1980, where Vang and his older sister, Mai Vang, delivered newspapers before school. Vang has said that he was verbally and physically abused by his father after their family moved to the United States from Laos. Vang attended Humboldt High School in St. Paul, and when he was 14, he married Sei Zhang in a wedding arranged by his parents. That mm. is young. <laughs> that is very young, yes. Yeah. And he had no choice in the matter. Vang disliked the wife that his parents chose for him. And at one point after he got in a fight with her and after his father tried to physically discipline him, he ran from home to the freeway and into traffic in an attempt to kill himself. Um, well, that's saying something. Yeah. In 1985, Vang and his family moved to Stockton, California, where Chai attended uh, Franklin High School. He started a Hmong club there. That's great. So students yeah. would have a voice and he became its first president. He was highly respected as a role model and leader of students and according to one source was considered the most mature Hmong student. He graduated from Franklin in 1987, then attended San Joaquin Delta College, a community college in Stockton. He helped provide security at the annual Hmong New Year celebration and captained the community soccer team. In 1989, Chai enlisted in the California National Guard. He spent six years in the California National Guard, leaving in 1995. He achieved a sharpshooter qualification badge and a good conduct medal before being honorably discharged. Between 1990 and 1995, Chai worked as a teacher's aide for disabled students and volunteered at the Lao Family Community Center in Stockton, coaching kids in soccer and karate. So um, I, I don't know if everybody knows this, but when you're in the National Guard, you, you're not it's not like in the army. You're not there all the time. So mm -hmm. he, between 1990 and 95, he was doing these other things as well as being in the National Guard. Right. So. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Hello, this is Dr. Grande the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, 
And now each week, I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. When he worked at the Lao Family Community Center, he was a mentor and a role model. And according to one source, quote, he just had a big heart for the community, unquote. That's sweet. Um, so, yeah. so far, sounds like a great guy. Yeah. In 1999, the Vang family re- returned to Minnesota for better jobs and a lower cost of living. Chai Vang's father died in 2002, and Chai made a promise to take care of his siblings. His grandfather, New Chair Vang, also depended on his grandson to help him. So that's it for the early life. Now we're going to dive into the timeline. Take us there, Beth. Vang became a long-haul truck driver to make more money. He has at least six children, but some accounts say he has as many as 10 children by four different women. I had a little trouble trying to get the exact information, but he had at least six. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And he has been described as a hunting enthusiast and a Hmong shaman performing ceremonies to bless people or heal illnesses. Relatives, friends, and co-workers from Minnesota to California had kind words about Vang. He was praised as a caring brother and grandson, and co-workers recall him as a hardworking truck driver. But while working as a long-haul trucker, Vang would telephone his wife and get into fights, causing him to consider driving off the road to attempt suicide. He sometimes considered using his truck to run other motorists off the road if they offended him in some way. And I actually don't think that that's unusual (laughs) to think about those things. Oh, yeah. No, I I do not disagree. When uh, I was going through some rough times... it was something that crossed my mind to yeah. uh, drive into a tree or something like that. But I didn't do it. I thought right. about it. And I don't think mm-hmm. it's that unusual to think about it. They, the article that I read was kind of making a big deal out of it. But I don't think that's that unusual. I don't either. And um, I don't know if my therapist would say that that's, that's weird. Uh, I, yeah. I think they would say it's common to think about those think things about but if it. you are yeah. if you are like seriously planning it, gonna do yeah. it yeah yeah don't do it, don't we, do it. let's t- let's dive into that is what yeah would say. <laughs> tell me more about that um so uh he also had some run-ins with hunting and fishing authorities and in one case he was fined for catching 93 crappies above the limit uh and a crappie is a fish um I don't know why anybody would want it. Okay, so I know. Just a short tangent. When uh, I was a kid, we went to Minnesota and we stayed at a cabin and we went fishing. And um, my brother caught a pike and my sister caught something else. Oh, I think it was a sunfish. And Uh I I caught a crappy and I was so (laughs) mad. (laughs) What? Are they tasty? Why are we so mad? Because it's called a crappy. 
I got the crappy oh, fish. Oh, Bim. <laughs> but you caught something. Come yeah, on. I know. I know. Uh, <laughs> Silly. <laughs> uh, so, Vang, in another, um, I Run guess. Run in hunting and fishing crime uh he was he was fined for trespassing while deer hunting santa maria <laughs> why people get so mad about the stupidest stuff i know i know <laughs> how dare you how dare you how 93 dare crafts you? Oh, ice i how dare you yes <laughs> i am calling the police <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> Sorry, that's okay. It's funny. <laughs> I was kind of thinking the same thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> On December twenty fourth, two thousand and one, police responded to a nine one one call from Vang's wife, Sejong. She told police that Vang waved a gun at her and threatened her life during an argument about their pending separation, and he spent Christmas in jail. He was not charged after his uh, or after this arrest because Se. Young would not cooperate with authorities, which is not unusual for people of color, mm-hmm. um, by the way. But the couple separated and Say Young moved to Milwaukee with their five children. After the breakup, he had a short term relationship with a woman that, according to the state health department, Sorry, my phone is um, going off. That's very unprofessional. Um, Anyway, according to state health department, birth records produced a baby in May of 2003. According to one source, Vang defaulted on child support payments for three children who lived with their mother in Stockton in 2003. And I only found that in one source. So that's where the question is about how many children he had. So he may have had seven he may have had 10. <laughs> but but he also, I think, was caring for his siblings. And he, I mean, he had a lot of mouth to feed oh, yeah, his yeah. siblings and their kids. Yeah. So I just wanted to point out that I don't know if this part is actually true. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was just reported in one place. So um, that's where the 10 children come from. And um, I, I don't know. So anyway, the same year, Vang put down $5,000 in cash and began paying $1,260 a month for 40 acres of wooded land in Kennebec County, Minnesota. In uh, 2004, Vang took a second job driving a delivery truck. He married again somewhere around this time, and on October 6, 2004, his new wife gave birth to a daughter. So he was juggling two jobs, paying two mortgages, ostensibly paying for 10 children and supporting his siblings because his father passed away, and helping out his extended family, and he had a newborn. And again, that's because he's the oldest son. So right. all that That's responsibility would have been expected of him anyway. So anyway, yeah. he didn't really have yeah. a choice. During this time, nearly every Friday when Vang finished working the second of his two jobs as a truck driver, he would head north to the 40 acres he'd bought and he would spend the weekend at his cabin there. Oh, nice to get away. And on Sunday, November 21st, the second day of the state's nine-day deer season, Vang went out deer hunting with two friends and their two sons around the town of Meteor in northwest Wisconsin, where deer hunting is very popular. This is an area that has a mix of public and private land. Vang and his friends began their day on public land, but Vang later went by himself onto some private land co-owned by Robert Croteau and Terry Willers near Rice Lake. 
The land did not have any signs designating the area as private property and did not have any no trespassing signs. A hunting party of about 15 people were staying at a cabin on this private land. It was their annual opening weekend trip up to the property, you know, before Thanksgiving and everything, and la 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 la. On that day, as Terry Williers was returning to the cabin, uh, from hunting that morning, and while carrying his hunting rifle slung over his shoulder, he saw Vang sitting in a deer stand. He used a handheld radio to ask the people at the cabin whether or not anyone should be in the stand. When he was told that no, the man was trespassing, Terry Willers approached Vang and told him that he was on private land and that he needed to leave. By the way, I have to say this because I did not, I heard a bunch of white people at work talking about a deer stand and I was like, why would a deer need to be in a stand? Uh, It doesn't make, it didn't make any sense. And I was like, what are you talking about? But it's, it's a stand that, that uh, people build up high in a tree. Yeah, or could even, I think it could even be like a, just a stand, like you climb up so you can look and watch for deer. Yes, exactly. Well, I know that now and, you know, (laughs) researching this episode, I was like, oh, well, this is already in my mind bank of knowledge, but people listening to this might be like, why would a deer, what is a tree stand? Why would a deer need to stand in a tree? What is this? Yeah. Uh, Good point. I I didn't even think of that. So, yeah. So there you go. Welcome to hunting corner with (laughs) Wendy and Beth. Uh, (laughs) Nothing about it. (laughs) Next to nothing. We know what a deer stand is. (laughs) That's about it. That's all we need to know. So uh, Vang apologized. And after asking which way to go to get off the property, he began walking away on a trail through a a, uh, forested area on the property. Willers radioed that he had found a tree rat. And some of the others thought this sounded interesting and headed over on ATVs. And... I'll get to this later, but this is this is a person of color's worst nightmare. A yeah, gang of yeah. white people on ATVs, on ATVs coming at straight you. Straight at them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The party, which included Robert, Bob, Croteau, his son Joseph or Joey, and a man named Lauren Hesbeck, then confronted Vang as he was attempting to leave. Dennis Drew and Mark Royt also pulled up on an ATV. Not good. According to Lauren no. Hesbeck, Bob Curtu said, why were you in my stand? Do you think the fuckers grow on trees? And what the fuck are you doing here? Do you know you're on private land? Get the hell out of here. If you come back, I'll kick your fucking ass. Then he threatened to report Vang to game wardens for trespassing. According to Vang, Bob Curtu used racial slurs, calling him a, quote, chink and a, quote, gook. And his son, Joey, blocked his way so he could not leave. At the same time, Lauren Hesbeck also approached and Dennis Drew and Mark Royt jumped off of their ATV. So they're coming at him with ATVs. They're blocking his way and they're yelling these racial slurs at him. And by the way, I, I heard these white guys talking at the trial in the, in the documentary and they were like, they admitted that, that there were racial slurs that were hurled, but they were like, that shouldn't be enough to warrant killing somebody. And maybe it's not. But I'm just thinking when I hear somebody say the N word, I want to rip 
this person's face off and yeah. it just triggers something in you and and you knowing the history of these words people died in the midst of having these racial slurs hurled at them that's right why it's so triggering and frightening so anyway yeah the um one of the documentaries that i watched uh they were talking to this guy, I think he was Hmong, and uh, he was describing how he was just in his car and some people started yelling those things at him. And he's like, I, I wanted to kill them. I, yeah. I just, you know, it was like a visceral feeling like you're just so angry. And I mm-hmm. know we've talked about this before mm-hmm. and just how like your your temperature just jumps and you're just like yeah. so angry. Yeah, it's a form of racial violence. And, and, and it yeah. may not, it doesn't have to be physical, but it is still violent. Right. Um, so at this point, Vang felt threatened, obviously. One of the men grabbed his license tag, which was displayed on his back, and then read it aloud a few times as Terry Willers wrote it down in the dirt on the ATV. Hespec later admitted that Vang was cursed at and that Joey Croteau did at one point block Vang from leaving. According to Lauren Hespec, after this, they turned and started to leave, but he stopped Bob Croteau saying, quote, something was wrong. Terry Willers had begun walking through the woods toward the cabin while the other men turned the ATVs around to head back to the cabin. Hespec said that he looked back and saw Vang about 20 to 30 yards away with his back turned, doing something with his firearm, and then saw the scope on Vang's gun drop off. But according to Vang, as he was making his getaway, he kept looking back because he was afraid they were going to do something to him. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. He then saw Terry Willers take his rifle off of his shoulder. Again, this is this is like horrifying. Again, a gang of white people surrounding one person of color is right. terrifying. And it yeah. has happened throughout history. And it's not people of color aren't like making this up. This is scary and dangerous. Yeah, I can only imagine. But um, I'm thinking about just me mm-hmm. and five white guys. I'd be scared yeah. shitless. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and a lot of the sources that I referred to were doing their darndest to play that down. Yeah, um, as yeah. if as I agree. If he sh- he should not have been scared, or they just um, didn't understand it. Yeah, and um, it was really upsetting to hear those accounts, but I'll get yeah. into that in our takeaways. Uh, Hespec says he saw Vang turn and point his rifle at Willers, who was about 25 yards away from Hespec. Willers says that he saw Vang take his gun off his shoulder and then around to the front of his body. So he took his gun off his shoulder, held it in front of him, and said, don't you shoot at me, you son of a bitch. Vang said he crouched down as he heard a gunshot and saw the bullet hit the dirt in front of him. He then removed the scope from his gun and shot at Terry Willers, who had started running. The first shot missed, but the second shot hit him. Vang then charged the group and began shooting. He actually had time to reload and start shooting again. Meanwhile, Terry Willers radioed the cabin and said that they had been shot. Others came out to provide assistance some riding ATVs, again, terrifying. The rescuers also came under fire as Vang proceeded to shoot more of the hunters with his rifle. They grabbed who they could grab and got out of there. They managed to retrieve three wounded friends, put them on their four-wheelers and escape. And within a short period, five of the hunters were dead and three more were wounded. Vang then disappeared into the woods. Vang hunting's li- his hunting license 
uh, number was relayed to the authorities who issued a bulletin as the survivors were taken to the hospitals. One of the wounded hunters, Dennis Drew, died the next day, bringing the toll to six dead and two wounded. Um, so now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. Hit it, Beth. Vang waded into the woods, lost, and several hours later, he ran into two hunters and asked for help. They took him to a game warden who recognized his hunting license tag. The game warden said that, quote, he was very calm. He didn't say anything. And police said Vang was cooperative. He was placed in custody and his bail was set for $2.5 million. People talked about being mystified that a dispute over a deer stand, which is not uncommon in the intensity of Wisconsin's brief hunting season, could become so bloody. And the shooting incident attracted nationwide attention and sparked controversy. This is probably where most people were, um, in terms of media and the zeitgeist, introduced to Hmong people nationwide. Because of Vang's background as Hmong immigrant from Laos after the incident, um, Hmong were discriminated against. Well, they already were, but now more. Yeah. (laughs) Now there's more. (laughs) Yeah. There were many accusations of racism. Many claimed that either Vang or the white shooting victims was the target of a hate crime. Among the incidents that are attributed to crimes toward the Hmong community due to the events are... Arson, when a former home owned by Chai Suavang was burned down. Someone spray-painted Killer on three Hmong homes in Menominee. And then some hate literature showed up in a Hmong neighborhood in St. Paul. And this is just three examples. There's more. Yeah, there there was there's too many to name for, for yeah. this episode, but there was a lot. And white residents were upset that the focus of news reports was on the discrimination against the Hmong people instead of on the victims of the shootings. This included a circulation of bumper stickers that said, save a deer, shoot a Hmong. Oh, my God. And to his yeah. credit, the son of one of the victims said he was disgusted by these bumper stickers. Well, as am there's, I. There's That's that. Yeah. Sick. There's that. Yeah. yeah that, that is sick. So this is a tangent, but interesting. The article that talked about the uh, bumper stickers compared it to an event called the Wisconsin Walleye War, in which the Ojibwe began asserting their hunting and fishing rights in their former territories. They had these rights due to the treaties with the U.S. government in the 1800s, but they weren't taking advantage of them until uh, the 70s. And then protests erupted in Wisconsin among sport fishermen and resort owners who were opposed to tribal members spearfishing walleye during spawning season. In 1989, a protest campaign used bumper stickers that said, save walleye, spear an Indian. Jesus Christ. This is just fucking disgusting. Basically, white people were pissed that Ojibwe were allowed to fish on their own former territories that were taken from them. Um, Yeah stolen from them and this is why i mean yeah their I don't, memories I don't understand are so it. Yeah. short oh my I, like I, i'm really sorry beth it. my blood pressure is so high right now oh. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> uh, this that's why the story was so interesting it just yeah yeah it really got me heated i mean the just so many misunderstandings in this. Yeah. So So the protesters who were, of course, white people resorted to racially motivated chants, gunshots, bombings, rock throwing and slingshot attacks. And this was all over fishing, fishing. 
stupid motherfuckers. Are you dumb? That's so much mayonnaise. Like, it's disgusting. Oh, my God. It's so weird is what I think. Yes. Why? Disgusting and weird. Why do you do this? Yes. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Beth, did you know any of... I'm just kidding. No. Assuming all white people know each other. They're not your cousins? Okay. Not my cousins, no. (laughs) So um, not only were these white people getting all upset over fishing... Uh, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources and Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission reported that the Ojibwe speared only 3% of the walleye in the treaty ceded territory. 3%. Why are y'all so mad? Why yeah. are you mad? Why, what, why, what, what is this? <laughs> why are you mad? <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, yeah, why are you so pressed? Uh, the state legislature later passed a hunter's protection law. Uh, that sounds like a white law and a law requiring schools statewide to include information about local tribes in history and geography curricula. Oh, that's good. Never mind. This yeah. included an explanation of the treaty <laughs> rights they had acquired in exchange for ceding hundreds of thousands of acres of land to the United States, which benefited countless European American settlers. Let's be clear. European American settlers benefited from all this. So you all need to shut right. the fuck up and sit down. <laughs> now, let's need get to into- do this kind of stuff in, in yeah. all schools, really. Yes, they do have several seats. And um, I heard this on Pod Save the People um, that uh, these companies that uh, manufacture and edit and write these um, textbooks, these history textbooks that um, in theory go out to uh, all of the public schools in the nation. The states have the right to edit them and um, uh, cater them to the history that they want told. Yeah. And so it's it's uh, it's whitewashing upon whitewashing upon whitewashing of um, the history as the as the states want it to be told. That's and so there's the that's that's a, a, a big reason why we're none of none of us learned all this stuff when we were right, kids. Right. And our kids aren't learning it to this day. So teach your kids, teach your kids. Yes. I tell my kids that all white people are. Ter- I'm just kidding. Oh. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, what? Yeah, no, then they would what? have to hate that. Then they would have to hate that. Daddy, old dad, whitey, can yeah. I speak to a manager? No, they, they can't do that. <laughs> so anyway, uh, now we're going to get into the trial. So hit it, Beth. The trial of Chai Suavang began Saturday, September 10th, 2005 in Sawyer County Courthouse. 14 jurors, 10 women and four men, all white, were selected from Dane County, Wisconsin, and bused 280 miles northwest to Sawyer County, where they were sequestered. I think that's very significant that they were all white. All white. Um, yeah. Because there is a lot of cultural competencies that are necessary in order to unbiasedly weigh the facts in this trial. And this, right. I heard, I heard people praising the, the, the job that the jury did, and um, they really were not capable of right. doing 
um, justice if they yeah. were in fact all white and none all of white. them were mom. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Vang told the jury that during the incident he was, and he testified during his trial, he was scared and confused that he wished it wasn't happening, but that he began firing only after another hunter shot nearly hit him. Willers and Hespec claimed that no one in their group had pointed a gun at Vang before he opened fire, but I don't know if that's really true. Yeah. Willers and Hespec said that only one shot was fired at Vang by Hespec after he was already wounded and while some of his friends lay mortally wounded on the ground. But Hespec later admitted on the stand that he told his wife that he thought Willers had shot at Vang. Mm-hmm. Vang detailed for the jurors how the other uh, hunters approached him and how he responded by shooting each one. He recounted how he killed each victim using his hands and arms to imitate firing a rifle, which, um, you know, might be shocking to a juror. Uh, and also, um, English is not Vang's first language. So right. just throwing that out there. Yeah. When questioned, Vang said that three of the hunters deserve to die. Bob Croteau, Joey Croteau, and Alan Lasky. He also said that Willers and Hespec deserved what they got. Vang's attorney attempted to clarify Vang's statement that three of the men deserved to die, saying that it was due to a language barrier and that what Vang meant was that the three men's behavior contributed to the situation that led to their deaths. And I also wanted to say that um, I think a lot of his mannerisms and Mm -hmm. uh, the way that he spoke probably affected the jury, and some of it was probably cultural. I think so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So A hundred percent. I was watching one of the documentaries, and I I don't know if this is cultural or not, but I'm assuming so. Um, Some of the people would be talking about, the, the Hmong people, would be talking about something horrible that happened, and they'd mm-hmm. be smiling. And, um, you know, it's not something we as as Westerners do, but mm-hmm. um, it, it could be just part of their culture. And mm-hmm. um, we would read that as like, oh, that that's a weird way to talk about that. But mm-hmm. that's probably mm-hmm. just part of their culture. They would say things with a smile on their face for, for whatever mm-hmm. reason. We don't understand it. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I I I. I Thank you for saying that. I think that's absolutely yeah. true. Um, and it's unfortunate that the um, case wasn't made for that to sort of lay down the groundwork for like a, a cultural competency. Cultural corner. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> the juries needed a culture, needed a culture corner. corner. We yeah. should have been there with the defense attorneys. Uh <laughs> For in order to make this fair, because um, yeah. a bunch of white white people from Wisconsin, no offense, Wisconsin, but um, you know this ain't it. Uh, and yeah. and I, I I I know people have praised this jury for doing a good job, but um, I I really do think that they were inadequate. But on yeah. September 16, thousand five, Chow Si Vang, uh, Sua Vang, sorry, was found guilty of all six charges of first degree murder and two charges of attempted murder. And on November eighth, two thousand five, he was sentenced to six consecutive life terms plus seventy years. Wisconsin does not have a death penalty, so. Uh, 
he will spend the rest of his life in jail. So now we're going to get to where are they now? Take it away, Beth. Citing safety concerns in 2006, Vang was moved from the Dodge Correctional Institute in Wisconsin to the Iowa State Penitentiary in Fort Madison, Iowa. At least one source says that he is now being housed at the Anamosa State Penitentiary in Iowa. But the correctional departments are being cagey about exactly where he is located. Um, By the way, uh, speaking of prison population, so there are, turns out, a lot of prisons in the Midwest, in Wisconsin and Iowa, um, that house a lot of people of color. And the states get to count the inhabitants in these prisons who also do not get to vote, but they get to count them as constituents and get to count them as um, people that they represent, giving them more say when they go to their... Nope, it's very fucked up. Um, So um, I just... Uh, wanted to point that out there. Yeah, he's yeah he's wow. in prison. He's in he's in Iowa, and we might not give that a second thought after listening to this episode. But um, these um, prisons in Iowa with these p- individuals who are counted, um, uh, it's it's like slavery, uh, but not um, don't get any. But say. they don't have a voice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is really really messed Fucked up. up yeah. So yeah. So vote. <laughs> anyway, um, many of the monk, many in the monk community believe that Vang did not get a fair trial. Uh, they believe that Chai Vang was shot at, that he defended himself, and then was brought to trial in front of an all-white courtroom. A lot of snow in that building with an all-white <laughs> jury, and and that he was convicted because of that. Don't yeah. disagree. Don't disagree either. In 2007, Cha Vang, uh, not a relation, he was 30 years old, a Hmong American and father of five, was mm. murdered by James Nichols, 28, a white man, while hunting squirrels in Marinette County. Vang had a wooden stick in his clenched teeth, and his body was hidden in a depression covered with log and other debris. An autopsy indicated that he had been hit by a shotgun blast and then stabbed five times. Nichols was convicted of second-degree intentional homicide, hiding a corpse and being a felon in possession of a firearm. He was sentenced to 69 years. And by the way, I I just wanted to point out that in all of the documentaries that I watched, this case was also brought up like to sort of contrast um, the situation that, yeah, a white person, a white person can get in trouble for killing a person of color, but, That's um, it's sort of felt like I ex- read it. Oh, I felt like it wasn't like to excuse, like, um, no, that's not how I read it. The nope. racism. How did you read it? I read it that it was like a hate crime, like, yeah. you know, almost yeah. like in retribution. Yes, I did read it that way too, but I also felt like, um, the documentarians wanted to include this in there in there to also say um we we do know how to um carry out justice yeah um, when yeah, somebody yeah, I guess gets you could could read it that way um, yeah fairly that's that's how i read it but i i don't disagree with your reading of it i i right yeah this I, is i was this horrified is yeah yeah uh, when, I, when i found out about this i was horrified like oh my yeah. god mm-hmm. like this guy just killed this guy for no reason and uh, i don't know it's 
crazy. Yeah, stabbed him five times? What the fuck? Yeah. Uh, so after the murders, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources conducted outreach sessions for Hmong and other hunters to review laws and regulations regarding hunting. They set up a booth at the Hmong New Year's Festival in Green Bay. They have also been working to help Hmong hunters get more involved in traditional white-dominated outdoor groups such as the Wisconsin Wildlife Federation. I'm not going to that meeting. <laughs> I read that that group has... Well, I don't know about now, but when the article was written, uh, had no, they were all white, 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 white. No, yeah. no people of color in it at all. A <laughs> lot more snow in Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just the kind that comes out of the sky. <laughs> it's the people, too. <laughs> in 2002, Ka Yang Vu, a Hmong American, became the new diversity outreach coordinator for the Department of Natural Resources Bureau of Law Enforcement, where his goal was to promote cultural harmony and to create a diverse and inclusive conservation community. Quote, I am reaching out to all ethnic groups and communities to let them know the partnership that we at the DNR would like to build with them, he said. And in 2015, Vu became the first Hmong American to be hired as a conservation warden in the state. So making some progress. Progress. Yeah. Anyway, uh, now we're going to get into uh, what we think made uh, Mr. Vang snap and also our takeaways from the story. So what do you got, Beth? So according to an article on Very Well Mind, quote, when people in collectivist cultures are faced with stress, they are less likely than those in individualistic cultures to talk about their problems with loved ones. Research from 2010 suggests that people from collectivist cultures are more reluctant to discuss stressors with people they are close to out of concern for potentially negative relational consequences since they you know they're thinking about the the group they don't want to mm -hmm. bring it down <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah so instead, people often seek out what is known as implicit social support, which involves spending time with supportive people without actually addressing the source of the stress. And oh, Mr. Vang, he had a lot of stress. Yes. It sounds like he dealt with racism from day one in Laos and then in the United States. His mm -hmm. family were refugees, which is hard. And mm -hmm. you know how our country treats refugees like crap. Uh -huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They moved around a lot. He was married as a teenager, 14 years old. Holy shit. Yeah. I, mm -hmm. I still can't get over that. Anyway, mm -hmm. uh, started having kids. That's very stressful. Later, mm -hmm. he had all these kids and families to, to provide for. And it sounds like all he wanted to do was hang out in the woods and hunt. And mm -hmm. in one of the documentaries, his sister said that um, she asked him, why, why do you like hunting? And, and he said it, it made him feel free. So uh, mm -hmm. that's, that's why he liked it. That's beautiful. Yeah. He, uh, he really stretched himself financially when he bought the 40 acres of land that was a big mortgage and yeah. he had to take on two jobs then he had another baby and a new wife to take care of and uh i was surprised he didn't crack sooner <laughs> yeah you know yeah he was under a lot of pressure yeah a lot of pressure and i don't know exactly what happened that day i mean there's differing accounts but i think he just snapped 
when he felt mm-hmm. threatened. And uh, like you said, there was a bunch of them and only one of him. And mm-hmm. they were using racial slurs. And I think he just lost it. And yeah. the hunters denied that they shot at him first. But I don't know. Uh, they might have just shot at him to scare him off. Uh, but it backfired. Yeah. And and uh, my understanding was that there was no forensic evidence because they didn't check for forensic evidence to see who fired first. Yeah, they did say that they couldn't prove anything about um, if he had fired first. So they couldn't prove it one way or the other. It was a he said, mm-hmm. she said type of situation. So, but I... Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. I I wouldn't be surprised if yeah. they had shot at him. Um, Mm -hmm. As far as the trial is concerned, uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, his demeanor and some of the things that he said and did on the stand didn't help his case. So I think it was a mistake to put him on the stand. We've talked about this before. I don't know why he was put on the stand. Sometimes um, the defendant insists on telling their story, uh, Mm -hmm. but usually the in this type of case, the uh, attorney doesn't want them to go on the stand. Um, right. So I don't, get I don't upon cross-examination by right, the other, by the other side. Right. And he did. And um, so I think that was a mistake, uh, especially mm-hmm. when he said that some of the victims deserve to die. And I don't know if he, he actually meant that they deserve to die or he meant that um, what they did caused him to do what he did. And that's why they died. I don't know. But yeah. uh, it, it didn't help his case at all. But no. I also think it was a big mistake for those hunters to confront him like they did. I don't think mm-hmm. this, I absolutely do not think this would have happened if they had not confronted him so aggressively. And I yeah. doubt that they would have confronted a white man in the same way. And I, nope. I yeah. And as I was researching this story, I kept going back and forth. Um, I could see both sides, and I think both sides were in part to blame. Um, it, it was overkill. Vang did not have to charge the group and shoot so many people. Although, um, after I wrote that, I was like, 
maybe he thought he did because if he didn't, they'd come after him. So I don't know. Um, right, I, like and more I said, of them kept coming. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. So like I said, I kept going back and forth on it, but I think both, both sides were to blame. Yeah. I um, was struck by how um, how we talk about racism and white supremacy now. Like we have a lot more um, uh, voices um, speaking out about it. We have better language and we have more information to sort of have better conversations about it. And that will only continue over time. But when Vang took the stand and described essentially a mob of white guys on ATVs yeah. and more of them kept coming, yeah. that is a person of color's worst nightmare. And right. I mean, I just think of like all the movies that I've, I've seen um, where they're where like, there's a mob. Like, yeah. There's a mob. Like there's, there's a black guy at the, the convenience store. We got to go get let's him. Go, like, let's get him. Yeah. Going to go, Jesus my God, Christ. Why, why yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've seen it so many times and the, it, it plays out in movies that way, but it's, it, it plays out in movies that way because it has happened in real yeah. life. So many, many times. times. Yeah. And, um, I, yeah, personally, that would have been I, terrifying. Yeah. Yes. I mean, um, I, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show before, but my my um, African-American family is from Arkansas and my grandparents like left after somebody got lynched and they just like right. packed up and left the next day. Like you it's, it's here. very yeah. scary. Yeah, we're out of here. And I know that you can die at the hands of a drunk white mob, whether they have guns or not. Yeah. Um, it's just and dangerous. These, these people had uh, guns. <laughs> these people had guns. So yeah, it's fucking scary. Um, and they don't need a gun to knock you out and string you up on a tree. They're right. There was such an effort by white Wisconsin's to say that this wasn't about race. And I just think that is absolute fucking bullshit. Missed the point. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And they just refused to see. They just wanted to be remain blind. And I think um, I think that Vang was acting in self-defense. I do think he might have gone overboard. I think that's fair to say, too. Both things can be true. Um, I don't think anybody deserves to, to die at the hands of another human, but um, I I believe his story, and I yeah. I think that the jury got it wrong. I think yeah. all of the lawyers got it wrong, and that I wonder if he had another trial with more cultural competent jurors, including more Hmong people, one or two on the jury. Um, right. That I think the outcome might be might have different been different as far yeah. as his fate is concerned. So yeah, I agree. Blood pressure still high, but now we're going to get into <laughs> how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> <laughs> so 
This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. And that is one of those times today. We have no suggestions for this episode. We're just offering generic tips. And this comes from one of our listeners in our Facebook discussion group, Tristan. Tristan, you're a fucking fire. Shared some fire-ass tips for runners. Uh, and I used to run in South Phoenix by myself. Sometimes I would take a dog. But um, Tristan suggests share your location with friends. Text one or two people saying you're going on a run and finishing a run, blah, blah, blah. Maybe say where you're going if you're going on a new trail, etc., etc. Aftershocks are a brand of headphones that don't go in your ears. So you get the music through your jaw or something. Uh, there's something really cool. Um, and I wanted to add that when I did run outdoors by myself, I would use a speaker. Uh, a little speaker the size of my phone um, and I would clip it on my awesome ass fanny pack. But that way, so I could still hear my tunes or my podcasts and, and then also um, be, a, be able to be aware of what's going on around you. Um, if you use a running app, check your privacy settings. So the route isn't public. Um, speaking of runners, uh, there's this runner on Instagram that I follow. Her name's uh, Dick Run Claire. <laughs> Ever heard of her? Anyway, she she all of her runs are like in the shape of a dick, and uh, it's, it's it's just it's like oh my god, how does she do that? Does and she, she always it? includes like the balls and the scrotum in, oh in, the, in the like like tip in her in in her trail. It's like how does she do that? Anyway, it is. Very it's creative. Really, very fun. Anyway, so so but her runs are public, but you don't need to make yours public. Um especially if you are running like to and from your home, right? You don't want people to know like where, oh, you yeah. know, where, where you stay at and stuff. Um also run with mace or a personal alarm. Good tip. And uh try not to take uh, the same route every day. Mix it up so people don't learn your habits, especially if you run alone. And also uh, join a running group if you're new to an area and then you get to meet some running buddies. So thank yeah. you so much, Tristan. Yeah, thank you. Great tips. So um, <laughs> extra, extra, read all about it. Fruit Loops News has some <laughs> updates for you and we're going to shout it. So Beth, hit it. <laughs> so police say that a string of random murders on the west side of San Bernardino that began last summer are the work of one group of men who stalk their victims at night in a light colored sedan. Seven people have been shot, five of them dead, oh including oh a toddler <gasps> in four shootings that the cops say are gang related. All of the victims were shot in their cars or as they tried to get away from their vehicles. And the Daily Beast has dubbed the perpetrators as a quote unquote serial killer gang. Oh, my God. That's terrifying. Yeah. Uh, the first killing occurred around 2 a.m. on August 17th when middle school teacher Nancy Magana, 25, was shot through the driver's side window of her pickup truck while she was parked with her boyfriend and son. Surveillance oh video shows a group of men in a light-colored sedan parking in a nearby lot when two men exited the vehicle and, without a word, 
one of them pulled out a weapon and shot Magana. Oh, my God. Yeah. The police said that no words were exchanged between Magana and the people in the vehicle before the shooting started. Someone just walked up from the car, opened fire on the driver's side, striking her through no fault of her own. She was just sitting there with her boyfriend. And her son. Jesus. The next victims were an unidentified man and his two-year-old daughter shot in a red Toyota Camry a mile from where the Magana murder was just before 7 p.m. on September 14th. The man survived, but his daughter did not. Two years old. Mm. Oh, my God. Just before 6 a.m. on January 19th, police found the body of Lamon Hamilton, 24, in a West San Bernardino street. He'd been shot by a group of men in a car. Soon afterwards, a second victim who had been with Hamilton but managed to escape turned up for treatment at a hospital. Police believe this incident was a gang-related shootout between the two parties. So, it's a gang. There was a shootout, but these other ones were just the people just minding their own business. I also think police, um, when they're like, eh, we don't know what this is. Let's just call it gang violence. Call it a gang-related <laughs> to, shootout. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like, uh, you know, when you get, like, all your mail and you get bills and stuff and you're like, I'll just put this in the miscellaneous. Worry yeah, about it later. Yeah, I don't know what this that's is, what I, but, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> This is gang violence. Yeah. This is miscellaneous. <laughs> so two days after that uh, incident, the body of Israel De La Tour, 24, was found next to the driver's side of his black 2007 GMC Yukon in another West San Bernardino street. A man who had been with De La Tour was also found dead nearby, gunned down, the police believe, while he was trying to get away. Oh, my God. Surveillance footage released by police again shows the gunman being dropped off by a group of men in a car and then fleeing the scene in a getaway vehicle after the murder. The uh, San Bernardino Police Department has asked for help. Interim Police Chief Eric McBride said, there are people out there that saw these homicides, saw these shootings, that saw what happened, and we need those folks to come forward. Well, uh, Fruitless Pod Squad, we need you to come forward, too, if you see or know anything in San Bernardino going on. Um report it if you see something say something yeah but if it's just white you know black kids selling water you or yeah leave them alone you don't need to leave them alone but if if it's something serious light colored sedan shooting people yeah yeah, you might want to report that yeah oh my god this is a terrifying story i know Um, thank you for bringing it to our attention and you're welcome enjoy the terror (laughs) yes Uh, Oh, my God. My blood pressure is so high, Beth. I don't know if I'm going to even make it through this evening. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, I do okay, apologize. So, so that has been Extra Extra Fruit Loops. Read all about it. We got a new story. Uh, go ahead and shout it. Um, now we're going to dive into some uh, the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by people of color or about people of color or any true crime goodies. So looks like you've got a doozy, Beth. Well, I just wanted to recommend two documentaries related to this episode. Uh, I watched them both because I I was fascinated by a lot of the facets of this story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the the first um, 
documentary is called Minnesota Remembers America's Secret War. And the second is the Hmong people and the secret war. And we'll put links in our show notes. Uh, the story, like I said, is fascinating. And uh, I did not know anything about the secret war before we started researching this episode. And mm-hmm. I also feel like there's a feature length film in there about the Hmong crying to get out so if you're a screenwriter or a filmmaker i urge you to look into it there are so many personal stories that you could take a deep dive into Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yes please do go check all those out i watched them as well some of them i watched twice because they were so good Mm -hmm. um thank you very much beth Oh, I'm so sad the show is over. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, where can the people find us? Our <laughs> website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. We also have merch on our website now at fruitloopspod.com forward slash merch. That is right. And this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident. That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Three AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, 
glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go.